Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're looking at the limits of scientific knowledge with Marcus de Sotoy and his latest book, What We Cannot Know. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learned from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about Dirty Dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets, and get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Also, shortly after we started recording today's interview with Marcus de Sotoy, there was a massive rainstorm, which you can hear. We'd just started talking about chaos theory, though, so I guess it was appropriate. Anyway, get on with the show, you say? As you wish. Marcus de Sotoy is Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. In 2008, he was appointed to the university's prestigious professorship as the Simone Chair for the Public Understanding of Science, a post previously held by Richard Dawkins. In 2009, the Royal Society awarded him the Faraday Prize for Excellence in Communicating Science to the Public. And in 2010, he received an OBE from the Queen for his services to science. And he's also recently been made a Fellow of the Royal Society. Marcus is the author of The Music of the Primes, Finding Moonshine, both of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms, and The Number Mysteries. He's presented numerous programmes on television and radio, including the internationally acclaimed BBC series The Story of Maths, and the comedy math show The School of Hard Sums with Daro Brian. Marcus has a new book out, which is What We Cannot Know, which we're going to talk about today. Marcus, welcome back to Little Atoms. It's been yeah, a few years. It's great to be back. So the seeds of this book really came out of that appointment that I mentioned as the Simone Chair for the Public Understanding of Science. So let's talk about that, first of all. What happened when you became that? Well, I'd spent a lot of time um, talking about mathematics, how mm. exciting mathematics is, making programmes about maths. And um, then in 2008, I, I, I was appointed to this new chair. And it always makes me laugh a little bit, the, uh, the title. I mean, the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. Everyone kind of expects that I should know the whole mm-hmm. of science, and here I am to explain it to the public. And, to um, everybody. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, it's interesting to think back who 
might have been the last person to know the whole of uh, science as it was then, and maybe Newton, maybe Galileo, mm-hmm. um, but certainly I think since then science has been um, exploding at uh, ever mm-hmm. exponential rate of discovery. It seems, and, and certainly you know journalists would phone me up almost expecting me to know the answer to absolutely anything. It was uh, <laughs> um, I remember one time a journalist phoning me, me up just after the award for the Nobel Prize for Medicine. And he said, you know, oh, yeah, it's just been announced for the discovery of telomeres. Could you explain to me what a telomere is? Um, and I must admit, biology has never really been my strong point. So I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I was sitting in front of my laptop and uh, I quickly pulled up Wikipedia, which is actually very good on science. I mean, it's, it's got a, a good reputation for being uh, very accurate. So I, I quickly read through, got an understanding of what telomeres was and then uh, you know, confidently told him that they, you know, they were the bit at the end of the DNA which somehow controls how long this piece of DNA will last. And, uh, and, but it, it struck me then that it was kind of crazy that anyone should be expected to know the whole mm-hmm. of science. But it made me begin to think a little bit more generally about, yes, well, what about science, you know, the scientific community in general? Is there a moment when we could know it all? I mean, it's amazing. Just ever since I've been in this job for eight years and the sort of things that we've discovered in those eight years, completely transforming our view of the universe, gravitational waves, of course, the Higgs boson. So, and I think people are really excited by the power of science. But could we ever reach a moment where actually we're able to answer all the big mm. questions. And physics certainly talks about this thing, the theory of everything, TOE. Mm. I mean, uh, maybe we would reach a moment where we have the equations which explain the big and the small. We know the particles which make up nature. Well, famously, there has been people in the past who have reached that point where, you know, yes. the or Lord Kelvin, where they've said, that's it, there's nothing else to discover, only to come massively a cropper a few weeks later. Exactly. So I, I kept these stories really in mind. I mean, my favourite one is um, Auguste Comte, who um, in 1839 declared, we will never know by any means the chemical composition of a star Mm -hmm. and you know that seems a fair statement I mean when are we ever going to visit a star it seems almost and bring a bit back (laughs) how are we going to go inside but you know of course what he didn't realise is that well the star is visiting us every night that light we were able to analyse several decades later and we have incredibly good description of the chemical composition of a star and yeah Kelvin very famously declared at the end of the 19th century Physics, science, it's all just a matter of decimal places now. You know, that um, uh, it's all about just finer measurement, no more big uh, changes. And how wrong could he have been, you know, to have suddenly quantum physics and relativity completely transforming our views. So this mission of this book was to try and see if there are any questions in science that actually by their nature we can say... Um, we will never be able to answer. You know, because actually, my own subject of mathematics, we do have such a theorem. We have a theorem called Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem, which says that within a system for number theory, there are true statements within there that you will never be able to prove are true within that system. If you go outside the system, you can prove that's true, but then that will itself have its own unprovable truth. So, so I thought, well, as a mathematician, we've been able to analyse our subject and, and prove limitations. So could we actually, in science, actually prove that there are things by their very nature that are unanswerable? Or mm-hmm. are we always sort of open to these black swan moments where suddenly um, a new Einstein comes along and transforms our view of the universe? Um, so that was kind of the mission of the book. And of course, science 
by its very nature, the point of it is to look at things we don't know. Yes, and it's, that's what makes science an exciting, living, breathing mm. subject, to the things we don't know. I mean, actually, the book's a very good vehicle to, to tell us what we do know. I th- kind of thought that an important way to understand what we might not know in the edges is to look back in history and see those moments, like Kelvin or mm. Kant, when they thought we had hit an edge, and to understand, well, what happened that made us realise that, no, that, that isn't the end of knowledge or an edge beyond which we cannot know. And that by looking back in history, it's a very useful tool to understand ha- what might happen in the future. That's, after all, what mathematics and science is about, spotting patterns of behaviour in the past to be able to read through to the future. So actually, you end up, after having read this book, having a pretty good view of what the current state of science is today. Throughout the book, there's, I guess the best way to describe it is a metaphor, using God as an example of, of something. You know, you talk about that old God of the gaps canard, and, and something that basically is there to represent those things we don't know. And you do talk to a couple of theologians, and, and indeed a um, John Polginhorn, the, uh, the, the quantum theorist, about this idea. Tell us more about that. Yes, I, well, that was one of the other inspirations for this book because you know I took over from Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. who obviously spent a lot of time talking about gods uh, due to the success of the God delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of braced myself for all the questions I was going to get about my yeah. theological beliefs. Uh, and originally I kind of batted them away with this rather flippant answer that, yeah, I'm deeply religious, my religion is the arsenal, and you know every season I believe we will win the premiership next season. And yeah, yet again, my faith has been tested. Uh, but actually, I remember being on a show on BBC Northern Ireland Radio, and um, it was a philosophy and religion programme, mm-hmm. Sunday morning, you know, religion isn't too far from people's uh, thoughts. And we had this big debate, and this uh, journalist really pressed me on you know, my, my thoughts on God. And mm-hmm. you know, as a mathematician, actually, I spend a lot of time proving the existence of things and proving that things cannot exist. Yeah. Um, but I need a very clear definition of what this God is, So, um, uh, but if I'm going to engage with it. So I asked him, OK, well, give me a clear definition, then I will engage my analytic brain to, to try and answer your question. And he gave me this answer. Well, um, God is the thing which transcends human understanding, mm. which, which uh, is undefinable. And at the time, I thought that's a real cop-out, because how can I get engage with that intellectually? Um, but since then, I thought, well, that's quite interesting definition. Let's take that as a definition, mm-hmm. that it is the things which transcend our understanding, the things that will remain unknowable. And you mentioned this idea, the God of the gaps. Now, God of the Gaps actually was a term which was used by religious people as a sort of, you know, a put-down, that they didn't want their God to fill in where science was uh, unable to answer. They wanted their people to know God. But that's... Uh, I, I then discovered this guy, Herbert McCabe, yeah. um, who was a Marxist theologian in Oxford. And he articulates this idea that God is the existence of a question which cannot be answered. And he, he sort of says that religion really committed iconoclasm by giving this very abstract idea now too many properties it doesn't have. And it probably is too abstract for really to be, um, you know, a, a good God that people want in their lives for comfort or something. Um, but so, I, as you say, I took this almost as a, as a metaphor for, um, OK, well, what is the nature of these unknowables um, and what role might they play in our lives? And, and just to push that sort of idea as what are these unknowables and can I identify them from a scientific perspective? I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
The book is structured in a series of chapters, seven edges, you call them, which are the sort of edges of our knowledge in various areas of science. And we'll, um, we'll look at each of them in turn, and you sort of look at where, I guess, science is chipping away at the very fringes of those edges. And the first of these, well, you end up with chaos theory, but you get into this chapter through the history of probability, but looking at how could we ever calculate, could we ever predict the throw of a dice? And the very dice that you talk about in the book you have here with you, I'm looking at it on the table. That's right. I, I, well, I, I actually, each of these edges, each of these journeys I made, um, I decided to take an object which mm-hmm. somehow captured um, the essence of that edge. And I think, you know... The, um, the dice, or as some people say die, they sometimes criticise me saying dice is plural, but actually I looked this up and um, <laughs> dice has been used since the 16th, 17th century as a singular, so I'm going to call it a dice. Um, I think this really represents the idea of the unknowable. The whole point about uh, why a dice makes a good game, why uh, you, know, you bet on it, is that it's very difficult to predict what it's going to mm-hmm. do. So the first edge is really about looking into the future. Can we use what we know now to know what's going to happen next before it becomes the present? And actually, my subject, mathematics, that is at its heart what it's about. It's about looking at the patterns of behaviour in the past, what the dice has done, to see whether you can um, uh, predict what that's going to do next. And, And actually, you know, I guess my hero on my journey to understand the future by knowing the present is Isaac Newton because he really gave us the equations for the way objects behave, the physical behaviour. He gave us the calculus which allows us to understand a a world in flux. (laughs) But, you know, so even if the universe is deterministic, controlled by equations, well, if that is true, then surely we could know the behaviour of things like a dice. I just need to measure it precisely and then uh, I can run these equations. Now, that's, there's a, the word there, which is the trouble, precisely. Mm-hmm. I cannot know the precise setup of this dice as it leaves my hand. And if Newton is my hero, I guess my nemesis in this whole journey, in this edge to know the future, is Honoré Poincaré, because he was the guy who discovered this thing, chaos theory. Um, so, yes, you mentioned pro- probability. That was our, uh, a very good tool to help us to navigate the unknowable. But it was always recognition that it was um, uh, a partial, you know, well, with partial information, what can we do? Mm-hmm. But um, I think there was this kind of feeling like, well, if I get as precise a description of the current state of the universe, then as I improve the accuracy of that, I will improve the accuracy of my predictions. Mm -hmm. Um, And what Poincaré showed is that, well, that ain't necessarily so. You could have uh, your universe pinned down to 50th decimal place, although we'll come to that in the second edge whether that's possible, Mm -hmm. Um, but still, you know, uh, a 50th decimal place may cause within five days of evolving these equations into the future, completely different Mm behaviours. And this is a thing we call the butterfly effect. A small change in the initial conditions can have a huge impact on on the different outcomes. Um, But... We mustn't use chaos theory to say, well, that means we can't know anything and throw everything in, because mathematics has been very powerful in predicting the future. And that was the message of this edge, is that actually, well, it's important to know when you can know, but actually maybe it's as important to know when you can't know, when you're in one of these chaotic regions where very small changes have big impacts, and you can measure um, the the rate at which these predictions are going to diverge. Mm -hmm. So for the weather, we know it's five, six days, 
Um, we have pretty good weather predictions now because of our increased accuracy of measurement um, to about five days, but then it just goes haywire. For the universe, or for the solar system, Poincaré mm-hmm. discovered chaos by trying to show that our solar system was stable. That's when he realised, no, actually, a very small change in the location of Mercury, for example, might have a massive effect on whether our solar system stays doing its ellipses around the sun or whether something different can occur. But, you know, the... That's not going to happen in five days, you'll be glad to hear. I mean, because there are scenarios where Mercury starts to cause a resonance with Jupiter. And we can have Mercury intersecting with the orbits of Venus, knocking that out, destabilizing Earth. And so we've, we've run computer models which show that uh, just a small change could cause this to happen. But it, it's not in a five days, so you'll be glad to hear. <laughs> it's interesting you describe him Poincaré as sort of the enemy in this book because he's someone we've talked about all the previous times we've spoken he is something of a hero he is a hero because you know he talks very eloquently about doing mathematics about mathematics being a very creative process Mm -hmm. so you know I feel um, he's a kindred spirit in the way he does his mathematics and you know he took the effort to write books for the public about doing uh, what it means to do mathematics. But yes, I guess in this, you know, he, I, I think he didn't want to discover this. I mean, he actually lost a lot of money because um, he'd actually submitted an essay describing the, what he thought was the stability of the solar system um, for a prize. And then one of the referees came back for the prize and said, well, you've made this assumption that, you know, a very small change won't cause a very big difference in the outcome. Can you justify this? And as he went back, he discovered, oh, Gosh, no, that can cause a big difference. And he'd been given this prize by the King of Sweden for his essay, um, and he actually had to spend his prize and more trying to recover all the printed copies of this paper, which actually had this mistake in it. Um, And so I think he equally was a little bit shocked by uh, this discovery that very small differences can cause massive differences in the outcome. The other thing worth saying here is, you mentioned Newton and Newton and Galileo sort of gave us discoveries that mean that we can predict you know, where a planet is going to be at a certain point in the future to the extent that we can send a little tiny probe out there to meet that. Yes, exactly. And those things work. In our lives, in our everyday lives, Newton's laws work. But some of the things we're going to look at as we go on mean that, you know, once you get to a certain level of matter, those laws themselves break down and don't hold. Yeah, this is because um, this whole assumption about talking about deterministic universe mm-hmm. um, uh, was totally threatened by the discoveries at the beginning of the 20th century. That, um, well, because chaos theory is deterministic, and this is really important. Mm-hmm. It, describing processes that look random, like the fall of a dice, but, um, but actually, you know, if I repeat the initial setup precisely, the dice will do exactly the same thing each time. It is a deterministic system. The randomness is about our articulating our um, lack of information about that setup. But quantum physics says, well, that's not necessarily the case with small particles, that you can have um, exactly the same setup and have a different outcome each time. Now, that is really went against everything that Newton, Galileo, Laplace, even Poincaré probably mm-hmm. believed. But I, actually, I just want to come back to this dice, yeah, because please. I was quite intrigued... Uh, whether this was genuinely chaotic or mm-hmm. not. You know, maybe maybe it is. A very small change will cause a difference in the outcome. And I discovered some research done recently by um, four Polish mathematicians yeah. um, that showed actually that under certain circumstances, this dice is less chaotic and more predictable um, than we might think. And this is the case if 
when I drop this dice, actually the law of how it falls to the table um, is quite predictable. It's when it hits the table that things sort of go a bit awry. Mm-hmm. But if the table is actually quite soft and it dissipates quite a lot of energy, then actually this is not chaotic. Um, you can actually uh, see that small changes don't cause quite a a big difference in the outcome. Actually, you can you can draw pictures to describe the behaviour, and um, the chaotic regions are described by pictures which we call fractal. That, you know, it's kind of infinite complexity mm-hmm. in this picture, and, and so a small change can change you from one kind of di- uh, system to uh, another. But in the case of a table which dissipates a lot of energy, you don't have this fractal behaviour, this chaotic behaviour. Uh, so actually, if people take one thing away from this uh, interview, um, it's this. Actually, if you're playing on a table which is quite soft, um, more often than not, the dice, as it leaves the hand, will land on the side which was uh, pointing down to the table. So um, uh, I'm actually going to do this now. So I've got a, it one pointing down. I'm going to drop it on the floor, which is a sort of carpeted floor, and we'll see... Oh, it didn't work there, and there's a trouble with um, <laughs> the physical universe. It doesn't do what mathematics always says. So we've got a they four. They tried it on ice, didn't they, I think? That's they right. Well, that's a, something which doesn't dissipate any energy at all. So mm-hmm. it bounces, bounces, bounces. And there you get a, um, a very fractal behaviour appearing. I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to the second edge, wherein you look at particle theory. But to begin this, we talked about you know the, the new chair at the beginning, and before we started, we were talking about you know how busy you've been recently with this book. So why did you decide to learn the cello on top of all of that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because the cello is the object I take on this journey. Um, and uh, well, actually, I, I, music for me is a very important part of my working life. It, it is um, a way of just taking some time out from uh, working on my mathematics or writing books. Um, um, and, and so the, the cello was a kind of new challenge. I play the trumpet, mm-hmm. so that's my regular instrument. Uh, but actually it was a, another radio interview I did a few years ago on uh, BBC Radio 3. And they asked one of the questions they asked in this interview was, um, if you could learn a in- new instrument, what would it be? And, and what piece would you like to play? Mm-hmm. And then they play you the piece. So... Um, and I've always been a bit envious. I'm playing an orchestra in Islington, and trumpets, you know, we can have whole movements where we don't have anything to play at all. And I'm sitting there just watching the cellos, having such a great time in front of me. Um, so I thought that was one reason I chose the cello. So in the orchestra, I now hop over and mm-hmm. uh, play with the cellos. Uh, but there's another really interesting thing, and this is what I explored in this edge. And actually, I, I wish in a way I'd chosen both the cello and the trumpet to take, mm-hmm. because the idea is... These two instruments kind of capture two different behaviours. One is a very discrete behaviour, which is the trumpet. I put my fingers down on the valves and I get a discrete sequence of notes and I can't get the notes in between. So whilst the cello, well, at first appearances, feels very continuous because I can do a thing like a glissando. So Mm. I can put my finger on the string and go whoop and I seem to get a continuous stream of notes. Mm. And so this was actually one of the tensions at the heart of, well, what is matter made up of? And actually, the ancient Greeks thought it was more like my cello. Mm-hmm. They thought it was just a continuous, that you could keep on infinitely dividing this thing, and it, there would never be a moment when you got to a basic building block from mm-hmm. which everything else was made. Um, you know, at the time, they thought that matter was made out of earth, wind, fire, and water. And they felt that that water, and it certainly appears like that, water, if I divide it, I just get more, sort of two bits of water. And, and I think they just felt you could infinitely divide water, mm-hmm. that it had a continuous nature to it, and that all of these elements did. Uh, and it was quite late on, actually, uh, that the more atomic view of matter, no, that there are basic, discrete 
things which make up matter, you know, the, what we call uh, you know, the first step was realizing there are things called atoms and mm-hmm. they come. And, and again, it was a kind of musical feel to it because we realized that you know, nitrogen and oxygen binds together in sort of whole number ratios. You know, it's, it's either one to one or one to two and you never get anything sort of in between. What, why is that? And so that's a little bit like sort of musical harmony. The, the glissando does all the notes, but what my trumpet does is pick out these notes which mm-hmm. have these whole number ratios. That's what makes up the notes uh, uh, that we use in music. So, so I thought they were quite good objects to take with me to understand this kind of tension that there's been in, well, okay, what are the basic building blocks of matter? And that was the challenge of this edge. It was an edge of going into the sort of infinitesimally small <laughs> and how far can you go and can you ever know that you've hit the bottom layer? And is there ever going to be that final particle? Because as you've just described what the Greeks... Obviously, the, you know, the Greeks really were the first people also just to come up with that, you know, the concept of, of the atom that things would be, although obviously it was a, many thousands of years later that it was actually, actually discovered. But then there was a point where we went, OK, so that we've discovered that matter is made up of you know, atoms and protons and neutrons, and presumably for a bit there was a... That was it. Well, well, yes, but I mean, I think we have to step one back from that, of course, which, you know, the periodic table, um, they thought those were the basic building blocks. So uranium, oxygen, (laughs) hydrogen. And it was only when these sort of started to come apart into bits which were way smaller. So, you know, we discovered... Um, the electron, which was just had a mass which was so much smaller than anything in the periodic table, that we realised, hey, hold on, these things aren't basic as we thought. Uh, there seems to be smaller bits. And, and so we discovered the electron and then the proton and finally the neutron, which has no charge, so that was harder to mm-hmm. spot. And I think, you know, that was an amazingly exciting moment um, when you find three things which, you know, put them together in different orders, you get the periodic table. Mm-hmm. You know, and for some time, people thought, yeah, we've got it. Here's the basic building blocks. What a beautiful description of the universe. Three things from which you can make the whole of all the matter and the molecules um, that we see around us. And then our black swan moment happened. Uh, suddenly these new particles were being spotted due to cosmic uh, ray interactions with our atmosphere. Um, and we started saying, oh, it's not the only one. Then we found this muon, which was a kind of like heavy version of the electron, which decays very quickly. The point is the electron, proton and neutron are very stable. And, and so sort of um, all of the other particles we didn't see until we got ways to see them quickly before they decayed. But then we got this kind of... It was like the periodic table again. Um, We'd had this kind of like big, messy description which Mendeleev put into some sort of order, the periodic table, but then it all became just made out of these three things. And it's only these three things exploded again, and we had this complete mess of particles... um, and, you know, there's lovely quotes of the physicists at the time saying, well, if, if I knew that um, it was going to be like this, I would have become a biologist because there seemed to be no rationale to these things at all. <laughs> so, again, we needed another kind of Mendeleev moment, uh, which said, well, is it just a mess uh, of all of these things? And we then spotted that there was patterns, different sort of patterns, sort of symmetrical patterns similar to what Mendeleev did with the periodic table, which he saw these things coming in octets, uh, sort of periods of eight. But now they, uh, the scientists at the time, uh, 50s, 60s, uh, realised, oh no, these particles we can actually put together into patterns. And it, these patterns helped us to predict missing particles. Um, uh, the very famous case of, uh, sort of this beautiful sort of triangle with ten particles in it, but one was missing, the mm-hmm. omega particle. Now that's a great thing. Uh, what you want in every science is some 
ability to explain what you've seen, but some way to predict yeah. something new. And, and here we had this, this this new kind of order that people had spotted was helping us to see particles we should be there, and then sure enough, they were there. But these kind of symmetrical patterns, they could be sort of glued together to make a sort of larger symmetrical object. And what it led to was there was a missing layer right at the top, uh, which... Uh, kind of showed that everything, all the other layers of this symmetrical object were somehow made out of this top layer, but we couldn't see what this was. And people started suggesting, well, I think there are these things, quarks. These, there were three particles at the time, it was uh, three particles, which seemed to generate all of the other particles. Uh, and people said, well, that's a nice sort of heuristic, maybe a sort of um, bit of mathematics, but you know, it's not real. Yeah, nobody thought that these things were actually going to be real, apart from no. a couple of crackpots yeah exactly they were regarded as crackpots you know that that'd be you know be serious that's a nice bit of math which might help to order this whole thing but then it turned out we i mean we've never seen a quark in isolation that we we know that a proton and a neutron have three quarks at their heart and we know this through uh sort of particle interactions so we fire things at the i mean this is actually how we discovered the proton and the neutron we fire things at the nucleus and every now and again something would fly back in our faces and we've done this with a proton and we can see there are sort of three points particles at the heart of a proton or a neutron which seems to indicate something three things there um, but we've we've never seen them in isolation (laughs) so this is our last layer but it's you know at the moment and that's why that's the story of the history of how we've gone from atoms (laughs) protons and neutrons to quarks how can we know you know it's a nice bit of mathematics (laughs) which kind of says yeah those look like the bottom layer but then we thought out about the other things as well. And so what is happening? You know, I mean, out there, there's, you know, there's the, the Large Hadron Collider. They, you know, they discovered the Higgs boson. It's, still, it's obviously not sitting there idle, but there's, you know, it's there. You know, what else is going on? What, what could possibly be there? Well, I think that um, there w- there's a lot of hope of other sorts of ways of putting these particles that we have got together to make new things. So um, actually during the writing of the book, uh, we had the discovery of something called a pentaquark. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, you know, I said the proton and neutron are made up of three quarks. Um, well, there are ways to kind of stick these things together mathematically into higher sort of objects, but nobody thought they would actually exist. And, and now we've seen and actually could easily have been missed this is the interesting thing there's so much noise that you know the Higgs boson was plucked out of a huge amount of noise there but they knew what they were looking for Um, and uh, actually the person I talked each of these edges I take an expert with me um, in a way to help me on my journey to the unknown so um, I took Melissa Franklin um, who was one of the people who discovered uh, one of the last quarks so we we now know there are sort of six uh, quarks and different flavours of them and she was one of the ones to discover the last one and I sort of talked to her a lot about, well, how could you know that this might is the last layer? Could you ever know? Uh, and she said, well, I think there's, there's probably a huge amount of things in that data from the LHC that we're missing because we're only looking for the things we know we should expect there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this pentaquark, uh, actually, people weren't looking for it, and it came out and sort of bit them and said, hey, look, look, there's something going on here. You go, look at me, look at me. Um, so that, that's an example of something that could have been missed. Um, uh, but I think there are, of course, ideas for things which are beyond 
the quark layer, which is string theory. I mean, string theory is a statement that maybe my cello wins out after all, mm-hmm. that maybe all of these particles are examples of sort of high-dimensional uh, sort of vibrating loops, vibrating strings, um, and each of the particles is basically a different harmonic of these things. So, um, and, and that's happening down right at uh, this thing called the Planck length, um, which many regard as maybe... The, the small, sort of smallest bit of space we'll ever be able to investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that might place, place a limit. Um, and if we got down to that level, maybe we could say, we well, now you've hit the bottom. Uh, but it's unsure what that sort of limit is. That limit might be, well, that's, the physics says you would never be able to distinguish uh, anything smaller than that length because uh, the amount of energy you need to investigate that causes the creation of basically a black hole which hides information so or causes the creation of new particles so you can never pin down sort of what's going on at that scale so mm-hmm. um, so there may be kind of physical limits of this you know I was asking can we go down infinitely infinitely deep in this and the, the, the physics might say no there, there is a, a barrier beyond which you cannot know Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Marcus de Sotoy and we're talking about his book What We Cannot Know. And Marcus, as we move into the third edge, in which you look mainly at quantum theory and the implications of that, I mentioned earlier that you'd bought in a dice, which was one of the uh, one of the objects you talk about. I understand that you haven't bought a cello with you. <laughs> a bit tricky to get on the tube. But the object that you've bought that you kick off this chapter with, I'm slightly more alarmed about. You've bought a, a tin of uranium with you that you, you basically bought. 
you know, he bought it online. Why are you not on some sort of list or something? <laughs> no, I was amazed. You know, it's amazing what you can buy on the internet. I mean, I uh, I, I went online and, and sure enough, I got this thing through the post. Um, it's uh, uranium ore. It's interesting to see the sort of comments. There's a review section underneath. Um, and there was one guy who said, oh, I'm, I'm so glad I don't have to buy this from the Libyans in the parking lot anymore. And uh, another one who said, gosh, I've had this thing for four million years and now it's uh, half empty and I, I'm complaining. So... Uh, so actually, it's 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 reasonably safe uranium ore. It and but what is the reason safe? Well, well, it is kicking off radiation, and mm-hmm. on the side, um, it actually tells me the activity rate. So um, this is kicking off six hundred and seventy six. Um, particles per minute. It's telling me about the radiation. But what was intriguing to me is that it, it can't tell me is when it's going to do that. Yeah. I do not know. Okay, well, this is an average thing. It's like the dice. You know, I throw the dice, you know, um, if I throw it um, uh, 600 times, I'll get 100 sixes, roughly. This is kind of the same sort of thing. Over a minute, you're going to get roughly 676 um, bits of radiation being kicked off. But not only does it, it not know, but physics doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And this is the unknown of this edge, is that we don't have any mechanism which helps us to articulate when the uranium is going to radiate or not. And at its heart is this thing that uh, listeners may have heard of, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that there are limitations to what we can know about the physical universe. And yet, you know, quantum theory, as is repeatedly said, is a theory that's testable to within an inch of its life. It's the most predictable thing, almost, that science has ever come up with. And yet, brilliantly, the concept of uncertainty is officially built into it. Yeah, this is extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, that's why physicists will not touch it, because it is um, our, almost our most well-tested um, theory. All the predictions it makes, um, uh, check out. But yes, at its heart, it says, you know, if I want to know where an electron is, and I observe the electron, then each time I do that, even if I set up the experiment the same way each time, there's a probability it could be sort of... I could find it um, anywhere across the universe. And we have this thing called a quantum wave function, which describes um, the probability of where you'll find that thing Mm -hmm. when you observe it. Now, the interesting thing is this act of observation, because before you observe it, actually quantum physics... And and people kind of uh, miss this, I think. Quantum physics is totally deterministic. Schrodinger's wave equation tells you the evolution. It's not even chaotic. It's a, it's a linear equation. It's the act of observation which then causes the wave function to collapse. And, and what this means is the electron has now got to decide, according to the probability distribution of that wave function, which says, you know, um, there's a good chance you're going to find it over here, a little chance in the middle, and another good chance you're going to find it uh, over here. And when you observe, it will then make its decision. But we have nothing other than this probabilistic model. And quantum physics says, you know, that is the nature of the universe. And it's the nature, this same thing determines the behaviour of this pot of uranium. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that you cannot know the position and the momentum of a particle at the same time. As if you pin down the, um, the position, mm-hmm. you lose control on what the momentum might be. And similarly, uh, vice versa, if you know the momentum, how the thing's moving... You don't know the position. Which gives rise to one of my favourite physics jokes, um, which is um, Heisenberg's bombing down the motorway and he's pulled over by the police and the policeman says, um, Sir, he gets out of the car and says, Sir, do you know how fast you were going? And Heisenberg says, No, but I know exactly where I was. And then the police officer says, Well, you were actually going at 170 kilometres per hour. 
And then Heisenberg goes, Paul, now we're lost. Um, so, you know, there's this kind of payoff between the two. And actually, this helps us to explain the behaviour of this uranium, because um, if we look at particles inside the nucleus of the uranium, we actually have a lot of information about their momentum, <laughs> because they're confined. Um, but that means that we lose information about the position. It means that if there, the probability distribution sort of broadens, and you might find those particles sort of spread out. In particular, they might be outside the nucleus, which is a thing called tunnelling. Uh, and once they're actually observed outside the nucleus, that, that means they can radiate. So radiation is actually um, a kind of articulating uh, this uncertainty principle. The more you know about one thing, the more you have to trade in knowledge about the other. A couple of things I can never really get my head around. I mean, obviously, there's more than a couple of things. But for the sake of argument, a couple of things... I can never really understand. You mentioned the idea of the observer. So as soon, you know, the, the wave function collapses as soon as it's observed. And of course we picture someone in a lab looking through a microscope going, no, no, it's, it's not there. But of course, in the real world, what do we mean by observation? Because, you know, I think you, you, know, you say in the book, can a worm observe the wave function, cause a wave function to collapse? They're just, you know, the interaction of particles everywhere cause it to collapse. Exactly. And I think this is still one of the unresolved things about quantum physics is this act of observation because you know surely can't we describe the whole universe in terms of a wave function including us you know we're, we're part of that wave function so why are we taking us out of that wave function you know, surely there's one sort of huge great big wave function describing the universe and its evolution and in which case, what's the observation inside there? But I think you're right. That to understand, um, you know, why do we not see this quantum behavior on a sort of macro level? Um, we talk about on the level of electrons and things like that. There's this wonderful example of Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's cat is a thought experiment which says, well, what if the cat's uh, life is dependent on where you find that particle or not? You know, if you find it one place, some poison is emitted, kills the cat. If the electron is another, um, it doesn't. And if, before you observe, the electron is considered in both places in what we call superposition. So does that imply the cat is in superposition and therefore dead and alive at the same time? And I think it's this idea of decoherence, which is what you sort of articulated when you say, well, surely, you know, aren't particles sort of observing themselves if you have, you know, it doesn't have to be a, uh, somebody in a lab coat looking down a microscope or even a, a live worm. I mean, an inanimate universe will be making observations of themselves in any interaction. Mm -hmm. Is sort of like an observation. So this is the idea that once you have um, too many particles, like a cat, that really the interactions of those particles just cause collapse of the wave function um, and, and these observations. So, and this is the challenge with something like quantum computing. Is well, yeah. They, uh, I mean, I heard a talk yesterday actually where they've managed to get um, about eight qubits acting simultaneously, which is quite a lot. Um, but, you know, if you want to, to do some really interesting computing, you're going to have to get a lot more than just eight things in quantum superposition. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's an issue of decoherence. That maybe there are limits to how much you can realise sort of the quantum effects on a sort of macro scale. So actually, I think the mo that's probably the most interesting thing about quantum computing will be um, just uh, trying to scale up at the quantum, at the you know, sort of particle level. Mm -hmm. How far can you go and still maintain sort of quantum, quantum world?
The other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, you talk about the idea of quantum entanglement in the book and how, you know, a particle will have another particle. And it's always the other side of the universe. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, yeah. Why is it always the other side of the universe? Could it not be two particles in this room? That's a bit like it is, and of course, again. experiment, it, it, it is mostly yeah. two particles in a room. And even that's quite amazing that what you do um, to, to one, uh, once they're entangled, will instantaneously affect the other. And, and this instantaneous is kind of... You actually already have it when you fire the double slit experiment, which is the classic mm. quantum theory one where you send a single electron through two slits um, and then when it hits the photographic screen at the back, the electron has to decide where it is. That's almost a similar in- instantaneous collapse of the, the wave function. You know, how does the photographic plate know not to record the mm. electron if it's recorded somewhere else? So, so I think uh, this idea of entanglement you know, is happening just on small scale. And I think it just, because it can happen on a larger scale across the universe, that sort of uh, helps you to think how weird this, this effect is because there is information travels at the speed of light. And it seems like, aren't you defying that? But I think you've got to think of an entangled, two entangled particles as like one entity. But this has been used to kind of push what would a mechanism be like which might control that probabilistic behaviour. You see, Einstein had this famous statement that surely God does not play dice. <laughs> and I think I tend to agree with him in a way. Uh, and this is why he thought of this ex- thought experiment with Podolsky and Rosen about entangled particles and, and um, uh, tried to, to tease out whether actually does the electron know before it is observed what it's going to do. And, and it kind of was revealed... No, you can't. You can't pre- predetermine the states of these things before observation because your different choices of observation can cause it to do different things and that will lead to a, a contradiction. It's a very famous thing called Bell's theorem, mm-hmm. one of the most challenging things in quantum physics, which I sort of talk a bit about in the book. But the, the implications of all of this entanglement and Bell's theorem is... That a mechanism, you know, I've got my pot of uranium here. I kind of feel that there should be some little mechanism at the heart of this. Maybe a little clock or a little something very small, which is actually controlling when the thing's going to kick off the radiation. And if we could really understand that, we would throw away all the randomness and we'd understand, yeah, it's behaving randomly like my dice, but it's still deterministic. And mm-hmm. I don't but these ex- entanglement experiments show that that mechanism, if it is controlling the behaviour of this thing, is very strange. It isn't localised in the middle of my uranium. Mm-hmm. It's actually spread across the whole universe. And, and that mechanism, the action of one in one place in the universe, will cause this mechanism to, to change the state of something on the other side of the universe. And, and so it illustrates that this mechanism if it exists, will be crazy. Now, most quantum physicists say, well, that means it probably doesn't exist. But actually, I think that's a mistake. And mm-hmm. I think this unknown, which is the unknown of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, might be just a stopgap to a, uh, on our way to understanding a deeper theory about how quantum physics really behaves. I'm Alex Kratosky, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Moving on from the you know, the very, very, very small onto the, you know, the possibly infinitely large, um, in the next edge you look about our growing understanding of the size of the universe. And I want to talk particularly about this idea that if the universe is infinite, what we mean by that, and therefore what shape it is. Yes, so uh, I thought this was going to be uh, a very clear, unknowable thing, that mm-hmm. if the universe was infinite, and we sort of know it might be finite, kind of like the surface of the Earth is finite, it's wrapped up, it doesn't have a, a wall, you know, we can keep on going round and round. So there, there are thoughts that maybe our universe is three-dimensional surface of a four-dimensional ball or mm-hmm. something, and, and that we just keep on going round 
bounded and it is finite. But there's another model which says that the universe is actually infinite. And then, you know, it's less clear what you mean by a shape. I think you can talk about shapes when the things are finite. But I suppose flat earthers thought the earth basically was either it was a kind of like flat square and you drop off the edge or, or maybe it goes on forever. I think that's most people's conception of the universe when they look out into the night sky is that they don't sort of expect to come back to where they started if they went on a journey just going in a straight line. And I think most people would say, well, yeah, perhaps it just goes on forever. But if it was infinite, um, and by that we mean that it's it's got infinite distance, infinite matter, you know, how can we ever know that? Because there are limitations again here on the large scale about what we can know. And this comes down to... Einstein saying that information travels no faster than the speed of light. And the speed of light is finite. And since the Big Bang, that means that we can only... The Big Bang is a singularity, uh, which, well, again, you know, can we know anything beyond that singularity? But uh, the information that we are getting about the universe at the moment um, is limited by the amount of time that that light has had to travel. 13.8 billion years, quite a long time. But it still means that there's a ball around us, what we call our cosmic horizon, beyond which no information has had time to reach us. Now, you could say, well, that's fine, we just wait, and this ball is gradually growing bigger and bigger, and we see more and more of the universe. First of all, that means that at any one time we'll only ever see a finite bit of this mm-hmm. universe, so it's, if it's infinite, we'll never see all of it. But there turns out to be another problem with this is because, yeah, we discovered the infant, the universe is not static, it's expanding. But not only that, uh, I mean, I remember as a kid learning about the universe sort of expanding and galaxies all going away from us, um, but there was a thought, well, gravity will pull it back, back again and it will slow down. But it turns out the, ex- the expansion isn't slowing down, it's not even at constant speed, it's accelerating. And it's accelerating at a speed which is pushing space over our cosmic horizon. So although our bubble around us of information that we can see is growing, space inside our bubble is being pushed at a rate that we're losing information. We're seeing less and less as time goes on. So much so that there's the amazing point in history where all of the galaxies um, that we can see today, which give us our sense of our place in the universe, we realise the Milky Way is not the only one, are being pushed outside our cosmic horizon. We will come to a point, actually, which is a point that people thought in the past, that we, that we were a kind of um, isolated thing in a void, mm-hmm. and the rest was, you know, it might be infinite, but there's nothing there. We'll come back to a point where in our galaxy, the Milky Way, gravity will keep it together. That won't get pushed outside the cosmic horizon. But we'll just be left with our galaxy, and all we'll be able to see is just empty space, the void. And so the question is, well, then, if it was infinite, it looks like that might be something we would never be able to know. We can bring in the next edge here, I think, because you, you look at in the whole time in the next chapter and begin with that again, that hoary old question, what happened before the Big Bang? Is this something we can ever know? Yes, and this comes to the idea of singularity, which is a, a mathematical term which expresses the unknowability beyond a certain point. Mm-hmm. We have functions, and if we hear say singularity, it tells us um, anything you know before this is going to give you no hope to make predictions afterwards. So the singularity of the Big Bang is uh, a moment where we hit infinite density um, of, of space and space and time are believed and matter are believed to have begun at this point. This is, I, you know, if you ask that question, what happened before the Big Bang, uh, most people's answer 
previously have been, well, that doesn't make sense to talk of as a question because you can't talk about before until you have time. Mm-hmm. And if we think time actually began at the Big Bang, um, then there is no, doesn't make sense to talk about it before. And quite a lot of these questions that I've been analysing actually come down to a sort of a misuse of language and a, an understanding about a, a new way that we should talk about these things, that the time is a bit like, it's like saying what's north of the North Pole, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make sense as a question because it just sort of loops around. Maybe time is a little bit like that, it just sort of bends around and doesn't have a, a sort of before. But I think things are changing and there are, of course, we know that actually we don't have a complete description of the Big Bang because the Big Bang requires us to unify quantum physics with general relativity, the very small and the very big. Mm-hmm. We take the very big, the universe, crush it into uh, an infinitely small point. We need quantum physics to mix with that and um, our physics doesn't do that at the moment. So it's quite possible that our understanding of the very early universe will change once we have this unification of quantum physics and relativity into, into a theory which can make sense of that. And it might say that actually that singularity is a consequence of current physics, um, but we may have a dis- different description which might allow us to talk about time before the Big Bang. I mean, you say when we do, this idea, that, you know, the idea of quantum gravity, which is yes. that that's like the big sort of holy grail in physics at the moment. But that, you know, could be something that we never know. Well, that's right. We do have this conceit as scientists that um, any theory that's out there, we should be able to sort of pull it together. And our, I mean, it is amazing how this finite bit of equipment inside our heads um, has been able to navigate the, the universe, the, mm-hmm. the very small and the very big. I mean, I, I found that an extraordinary thing on my journey to these edges. You know, most of us haven't been off this planet, yet we seem to know so much about the universe. Absolutely staggering. But yeah, it's true. Cats, my cat at home doesn't understand quantum physics, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I don't expect it ever will have the capacity to do that. Okay, so well, maybe we're not at the top of the evolutionary tree, or um, you know, maybe we as humans, there are things, uh, and I talk about that actually in, in uh, the edge about the brain. Is mm-hmm. you know, maybe there are physical limitations to what well, we know there are physical limitations to what the brain can know, and maybe the theories that we're after um, are just will be beyond our, our ken. But, uh, but I don't think so. We, we are amazing. Uh, I think quantum gravity, uh, there's enough interesting stuff going on that I think that we will uh, get breakthroughs in our understanding of the universe, which will help us to understand things like um, black holes and big bangs and, and therefore the nature of time. Well, let us move on to that sixth edge. So you talk about the brain. You're talking about what's always described as the hard problem of consciousness. Why is it a hard problem? This is one that philosophers say that by its very nature is an unknowable. Um, it's the idea that I, I will never know what it feels like to be you. You say you have a pain in your toe. Um, I can assume that we are similarly built and that your pain is probably very much like my pain when I stub my toe. But uh, but that's under an assumption of this thing called homogeneity, mm-hmm. that just because you're built uh, 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 pretty much like I am, I assume that your pain is like mine or your pleasure drinking a glass of wine. But actually, we know that that's not true for everybody because um, my wife, for example, is synesthetic. So she, when she looks at letters and numbers, gets a sense of colour coming out of these. So her, mm-hmm. her sensory world is actually very different to mine. And I don't really know what that means. I mean, I know what colour is. And again, you know, she says red, I say red. We both uh, have this name for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but is my sensation of red really like hers? It's, and, you know, Wittgenstein talked about this as a problem of language in some ways, that we play language games um, 
we all have this thing, a box in our head, and inside it is this thing we all have called a beetle or consciousness. Uh, but how can we ever know that uh, your beetle is anything like mine? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we, we are getting making amazing progress in sort of um, trying to address this problem. And we now have a telescope into the brain. We can sort mm-hmm. of start to look inside the box and get some information about consciousness. The fMRI scanner, the EEG, means that neuroscience is a really like in that moment that's like Galileo when he had his telescope mm-hmm. you know suddenly we were able to start lifting ourselves off the planet now with our telescopes into the mind we're suddenly able to penetrate and start to see that um, yeah there is activity in your brain which indicates uh, for example that a, a patient that we thought was in a vegetative state actually we can tell um, is making conscious decisions and, and is actually just locked in but unable to move their bodies so so these, these tools are giving us amazing insight into the way the brain works. So the challenge is, well, is the harm problem of consciousness really by its nature unanswerable? Or are we going to get to a stage where we could know what it means to be conscious? And that's what I was going to ask next. So the where is it question. So obviously we can examine the brain and we can see the brain functioning in more and more complicated ways. But does that really get us closer to knowing where that consciousness, our sense of ourself actually resides? Yes, I think we have to move away. Everyone was sort of looking for a place, you know. Like, I mean, we can identify places in the brain for language, mm-hmm. the Broca and Wernicke area, deal with articulating and understanding language. So, you know, there was a thought. And we, we know at least it's in the brain. If I chop off my hand, I don't become sort of two people. Mm-hmm. So uh, we know there's something about the brain. But um, I think for me, the most exciting discovery on the journey in this edge was um, some work by Giulio Tononi in Madison. And he was looking at the question of, well, you know, the brain is sometimes not conscious. And actually, as a mathematician, that's a great way to try and understand something, to try and understand when something isn't that thing. So so what's the difference in brain behavior when you're awake, when we're awake now, very alert, and when we're in deep stage four sleep, when there's really no conscious, conscious activity at all? And, you know, how do you ask some, a brain when it's asleep uh, a question before that felt like, well, you can't get inside there. But now we have this thing, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a bit like switching on a few neurons. You stimulate the brain and those neurons, it's like asking those neurons a question. What happens when you get switched on? Mm-hmm. And you can analyze with an EEG the behavior of the brain in response to switching those neurons on. In an awake brain, there's this amazing cascade across the brain and then this feedback to the original source of those neurons. Um, and it's kind of what Giulio Tononi has kind of called an integrated behaviour, this sort of feedback behaviour. Whilst with a sleeping brain, it's a very localised behaviour and you don't get this cascade and feedback. So he's really used a piece of mathematics to articulate the nature of a network which has this particular feature that it seems to feed back and, and, and forth. And so, you know, it's not about the location of consciousness. It's now about a network having a particular threshold beyond which maybe it has a sense of self. And that, for me, is a very exciting. Again, you will never really genuinely be able to know whether that thing is feeling anything. But I think we're moving forward to saying, well, the behaviour of this brain is so similar to a conscious brain and this may not just apply to brains, of course. It could apply to my iPhone, mm-hmm. um, that it's a network with uh, an integrated behaviour. Maybe we'll design networks which have a characteristic which we perhaps should regard as uh, having a sense of self. We've come to the last edge, and you've spent most of this book 
exploring fields that are not your own and, and discovering new things. And in the seventh edge, you return to your own field of mathematics. And you've already mentioned one example of something that, that's a definite unknowable in maths. But um, what else is there? I think that um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which I mentioned at the beginning, partly my motivation for this journey was that our own subject is able to look in on itself. And it is this... It's a bit like the consciousness one, again, the, 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 by looking at... Uh, you, you kind of get this sort of self-referential um, things going on, and that was what Gödel exploited, was a sort of self-referential statement, which teases out truths which are not provable. Um, and it gives rise to our understanding that, you know, the idea of infinity... Infinity always in the past used to be considered something unknowable, mm-hmm. um, but actually George Cantor at the end of the 19th century revealed, no, we can know infinity, we can understand there are many different sorts of infinity... Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it led to a realisation that we have the sort of smallest infinity, which is our counting numbers, one, two, three, four, up to infinity. Um, and then we have a different order of magnitude of infinity, which are things like our infinite decimal numbers, so like pi or the square root of two. And Cantor showed this is a genuinely bigger sort of infinity. But he asked the question, well, OK, is there anything in between? Is there a, an infinity which is genuinely bigger than our counting numbers and genuinely smaller can't be matched up with the infinite decimal numbers. And this turned out to be a sort of unknown and an unknowable that actually you can choose the answer. Mm-hmm. And it actually gives rise to two different sorts of mathematics. One mathematics where there is an intermediary set and one where there isn't. And I think that's what was interesting about mathematics in comparison to the other sciences because in the other sciences we know that there's an answer out there and what we're after is the description of our universe and if we come up with um, an alternative description if it doesn't fit the data that we're not interested in that so you want to know in this universe whether there are the infinity is is there an infinity between these two or not but in mathematics we're much more interested in sort of a, a multiverse uh, uh, interpretation we're quite happy with different models for mathematics um, and we'll perhaps work in one and maybe it's other times work in the other um, and uh, so these unknowns can give rise to just different models of, of mathematics, um, and, and we're quite happy with that. We're virtually out of time, but just one more question to finish off. And I guess we have been answering this question all the way through the interview, you do it all the way through the book, but this very idea of something that we cannot know. As we've already explained, there have been times in the past where you know people have made themselves look like fools by stating that. Is it an ever, ever a wise thing to say? Exactly, and I think the um, conclusion of most of the edges is actually that despite mathematics being very powerful at articulating the limits within its own subject, that it's much harder to pin that down in the sciences. And saying something is unknowable is like a red rag to a scientist. They're going to go out there and prove that actually they can know. So um, as you said before, the unknown is what drives science. Uh, The unknowable is actually will be our nemesis. So I think it's a, a good mindset for any scientist to to go out there believing that we can know it all, because it's that mindset which means that we make the great discoveries. I've been talking to Marcus de Soto about his latest book, What We Cannot Know, which is out now from Faulty State. Marcus, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Pleasure to be on Little Atoms again. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.